Hello, Sky Watchers. Thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Bryony. And I'm Patricia, and we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in April in this Cosmic Diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way, and other galaxies, it's important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark, and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. Here at the observatory, we are often asked about the meanings for the names of the full moon for each month, and April has the dubious honour of perhaps being the most misleading with the title of the pink moon. Every year we are flooded with inquiries asking why will the moon change colour? I mean, after all, why else would it be called the pink moon if the April full moon wasn't pink? Well, as you may have guessed already, there is a different reason for the name. The name Pink Moon comes from the colours of some wildflowers that start to show themselves in the Northern Hemisphere in April. Other names for this full moon include the Sprouting Grass Moon, the Egg Moon, reflecting the seasonal changes that start to become apparent as we move into spring proper. The moon will not be pink. And so if it does by some chance appear to be, it is simply by chance. Because heavy pollution or heavy haze can actually change the apparent colour of the moon, but it has nothing to do with the month. So next time you hear any myths about the April pink moon, please do us a favour and set them straight. The months after the Quadrantid's meteor shower are dark and empty for avid meteor gazers, containing no meteor showers. But that drought is broken every April by the Lyrids. Occurring in mid to late April each year, the Lyrids offer the first chance since early January to head outside and watch the universe's natural fireworks display. This year, the Lyrids can be expected to peak in the early hours of Thursday, 22nd April. Though don't expect too much as this does also unfortunately coincide with a waxing gibbous moon, meaning the skies will be a little too illuminated to see the faintest meteors. Regardless, if you're hoping to catch sight of some shooting stars, head outside after midnight and look towards the Radiant, which for this meteor shower lies near the constellation of Lyra in the eastern part of the sky. Locate the brightest star of the constellation, a star called Vega, and you'll find the Radiant just a few degrees to the south along about the same line of latitude. It's worth noting that while this is the radiant for the meteor shower, meteors will appear to streak away from it, and so you'll probably see more meteors several degrees to the east or west of it rather than right on top of it. So to maximize your meteor viewing, make sure you've got a relatively clear and unobstructed view of as much of the sky as possible. The winter constellations that have been dominating our skies for the past few months are now close to dipping below the horizon, with the classic winter constellations of Orion the Hunter and Taurus the Bull only barely visible in the western part of the sky in London not long after sunset for only about the first week or two of April. This also means that the famous winter hexagon asterism is leaving our skies. 
but it's making way for another asterism to take the stage, the spring triangle. The spring triangle asterism is made up of the stars Arcturus, Spica, and Denebola from the constellations Boötes, Virgo, and Leo, respectively. Some people substitute the star Regulus for Denebola as Regulus is brighter. However, this means the triangle is significantly less equilateral, so we prefer Denebola. And another thing, it's worth noting that we are talking about Denebola here, not Deneb. Denebola is the second brightest star of the zodiac constellation of Leo, while Deneb is found in the constellation of Cygnus. Arcturus is the brightest star of the constellation Boötes and the second brightest star in the sky after Sirius. So it's a good one to look for first. It will be 20 to 30 degrees above the eastern horizon just after the sun has set. From there, you can look southeast to find the blue star of Spica. Although Spica is the brightest star of the constellation of Virgo, it is significantly dimmer than Arcturus. And being lower on the horizon, you may need to wait until after 10 p.m. to spot this. Though the later in the month you look, the higher it will be. Once you've got Arcturus and Spica, you can turn your attention upwards to find Denebola, which is the tail end of Leo. Denebola is dimmer than the other two stars, but is still very visible to the naked eye. But it might be easier to find the constellation of Leo the Lion and work backwards. Leo's head is made up of a backwards question mark shape, which is attached to his vaguely trapezium body. Find the backwards question mark high in the southern part of the sky and then find the trapezium. The point of the trapezium that is furthest away from the head is the star Denebola, the final vertex of our spring triangle. While stars and meteor showers can be found in roughly the same place at the same time every year, planets are not so reliable. This is because they are also orbiting around our sun, same as us, just at a different rate. We take one year to orbit the Sun, and the planets closer to the Sun than us, that's Mercury and Venus, take less time, while planets further away, that's the rest of them, take more time. Because of this, the planets appear to wander across the sky. This is, in fact, where they get their name. When the ancient Greeks observed the sky, they noted down the fixed stars and the wandering stars, what we now know are planets. In ancient Greek, plani meant to wander, and so these wandering stars were called planitis, a word that has survived from ancient to modern Greek, and then, in a slightly varied form, made its way into our own lexicon as well, planet. While the nights are getting shorter and the days are getting longer for Bryony and I in London, our families down in the Southern Hemisphere are experiencing the opposite, which makes ideal conditions for stargazing. There are some spectacular star clusters that you can see if you've got a telescope, and even if you don't, you may be able to spot some smudges in the sky. About one degree higher than the bright red star of Antares, part of the tail of the constellation of Scorpius, lies the first globular cluster where the individual stars were properly resolved, M4, sometimes called the Crab Cluster. M4 is relatively large and even with a small scope you should be able to see it as a fuzzy ball of light, a bigger scope and you may be able to resolve the stars. 
You can also spot the spring triangle that we talked about earlier in the podcast, though you'll need to look in the northeast rather than the south. And true to form, Leo the line will appear upside down. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to us at ROG Astronomers on Twitter. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But now it's time for our cosmic news. Our cosmic news is, of course, the part of the podcast where Patricia and I go head to head with a story that has broken in the astronomical slash space physics community over the past month and battle it out for your votes. Kind of, I mean, I don't want to call it a popularity contest because I always lose those, but maybe it's correct because I always seem to lose these ones too, Patricia. Well, I was going to say, you you started making it sound like we're in the sort of gladiator battle that, you know, it's sort of an astronomer like fight club or something. I, it was that. I've never that's viewed hot. the podcast in that sense, but maybe maybe that's what it's become, this epic battle between two astronomers uh, to see who, who wins the podcast vote. But are, are you curious, Bryony, as to what the results of last month's vote uh, I'm is? only curious if I won. So um, I suppose <laughs> right now I'm in a quantum state of curiosity. <laughs> I'm kidding. I, I don't know. That's that's a terrible joke. That's, that's awful. Let's just move on and uh, let's... Let's hear. How did I go last time? All right. So last month, we I think we both had really good stories. You spoke about supermassive black holes, uh, the potential uh, for dark matter black holes. That was very, very interesting. And I spoke about far, far out, which is the most distant object we currently know about in our solar system. So, Bryony, from the previous month, it was a very close vote. Last month, it was another very close vote as well so i can say that the final split of the votes was 53 percent to 47 percent. that's that's how close it was so i can reveal that the winner with 53 percent of the votes is far far out (laughs) i knew it i knew i mean honestly though i feel like i'm getting better every month though clearly because you know, that is the closest split we've had yet. And I mean, to it be is. Honest, as much as I really enjoyed my story, how am I supposed to compete with Far, Far Out? Well, that I think if I have to be honest, I think the name Far, Far Out was probably the winner. And speaking of names, I know what you're going to be talking about. And I have a sneaky suspicion you're going to cinch this one, not just on the basis of the name alone, but because it is actually a very, very interesting story. So, Bryony, why don't you take it away and tell us what you've chosen for this month? Of course, I will. Uh, I'm more than happy to uh, take the torch. Now, this one, I actually debated whether or not it fit, I guess, the brief that we've given ourselves for the podcast, because yeah. this story actually originally It originally broke in 2017, but uh, some new research has come out in the past month that I thought was really important. And also there's been some, um, I don't want to call it misinformation, but some interesting things going on uh, this year. Yeah. So I guess I kind of wanted to take the opportunity to go through, I guess, like almost a timeline of events, what we know, what we don't, uh, and what we have now learned uh, in the past month, or at least what has been published. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's an important thing to do because sometimes with 
I mean, it happens probably across all sciences, but you might have something that breaks in the news. And then for some other reason, it sort of winds up becoming something that either becomes a conspiracy theory or there's something weird about it that people get confused about. And then often the scientists have to come back and just sort of, you know, recap everything and just get everyone back on the right course. So um, I'm curious, Brandy, what what are you talking about? So I am talking uh, about the first interstellar object that was detected passing through our solar system. That is 1I slash 2017, the comet asteroid object Thing Oumuamua. This was discovered in October of 2017. So For those of you who may not have heard of it then, I have to admit, I didn't actually hear about it then, but I was midway through writing my thesis at that point. So I'm kind of not surprised I didn't hear about it then, but I'm all caught up now, so that's good. But what what happened was some some astronomers at the Pan-STARRS Observatory, that's an observatory in Hawaii that takes really large all-sky images and analyzes them, uh, they saw something that they thought at first could be like a comet. And so at first it was named as a comet. And then they had a closer look at it and they went, hang on, this can't be a comet. It doesn't have the distinct coma, that is the sort of fuzzy ion tail or outgassing that, that comets have. They're called an asteroid. But the more they looked at the asteroid after they had observed it for a day or two, they realized, based on its trajectory, that this was an object that was on a very, very eccentric uh, orbit around the sun. Now, I say orbit in quotation marks because it is on a hyperbolic orbit. uh, Ah, I see. Yeah, which meant that it was coming from outside our solar system with an eccentricity of well, in fact, the highest eccentricity we had ever measured at the time of any object passing through our solar system. So it was named, it was literally a whole new classification had to be created for it, which is why it is 1i slash 2017. Nickname, I guess proper name, Oumuamua, which it was named so because it was discovered in Hawaii. So they consulted with some Hawaiian linguists and culture experts uh, and to come up with a nice name for it. And Oumuamua, kind of depending on who you ask, means either messenger or scout from the distant past. Oh, that's quite a, it's a really nice name for it. It's so sweet, right? Because the idea is this something, it's been traveling through space for well, goodness knows how long at the time. We had absolutely no idea how long. We just knew that it was a very long time. And so in many ways, it is a record from the distant past. And it's, you know, really cute. And like we were saying before, Oumuamua is such a cute name. And this is this is really fascinating because I think uh, I'm hoping I'm going to interpret the name correctly because you said one slash I. And one would imply it's the first object of its type or the first object of that class and I being interstellar, perhaps. Am I right? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that's exactly how I uh, sort of figured they got to the classification uh, thing from. There's been several different uh, things published because they weren't sure what it was at first. They classified it in different ways, which was really quite funny. Which makes sense because obviously it could have been a solar system object. And so that I can see how naturally the first time they observe it, they go, okay, it's this kind of object. We give it that classification. But then the fact that they realize it was on this hyperbolic trajectory or this hyperbolic orbit, you realize it's come from outside our solar system. So that's really interesting. 
Yeah, it really is. And it's worth noting before we go any further that we have observed objects from our solar system leave our solar system on hyperbolic-ish orbits. I say hyperbolic-ish because the eccentricity, uh, which is it's a measure of the shape of, of the curve, in some ways an eccentricity of zero is a circle, between zero and one is an ellipse, eccentricity of one is a parabola, and then higher than that is a hyperbola. Um, so we have observed asteroids kind of being kicked out of the solar system when they wander a bit too close to Jupiter. But the highest eccentricities we've ever seen were around the like 1.00 mark, like 1.006, I think, I think is the highest from memory. So we're talking about something that has a much more hyperbolic orbit than anything we've discovered well, anything that we've seen before, even stuff that is being kicked out of our own solar system, which is interesting for that. So the thing is, when we saw Oumuamua in October of 2017, we actually were catching it on its way out of the solar system. We think, tracing back, it probably entered the solar system, broadly speaking, although it's difficult to say exactly where one even enters the solar system. I mean, yeah, because it's, I, I mean, I look, I haven't been there myself, Bryony, but I somehow doubt there's a sort of, sort of a sign that says, welcome to the yeah. solar system, or you, you know, you're now entering the solar system, exactly. so... Yeah, and I suppose where would that boundary effectively be? That's also a good question. Well, that is another good question. And I'm, I'm not exactly 100% sure where they decided the boundary was for the purposes uh, of this, somewhere kind of out past Oort Cloud region. But they think that it entered around 1995 and then got uh, progressively closer and closer to the sun, passed by its sort of nearest point to the sun. It was, in fact, closer to the sun than the planet Mercury, uh, so that was in September of 2017, and we caught it when it was on its way out. After it had passed by the nearest bit in its orbit to the Earth, in fact. So we were sort of like, oh, lucky miss there, I guess. Yeah, so we caught it on its way out, which is a bit of an issue then, because they realised, oh my goodness, this is the first interstellar object we've ever seen, and we need to observe it now, because we're not going to get another chance. It is on its way out. Moving incredibly uh, incredibly fast so we only had um, a few days and a few to get um, good images from those telescopes and a few more months after that uh, and now it is very much out of view it is still in our solar system it's just way too faint it's too small of an object for us to actually be able to detect it now when they saw it there were some instantly some really strange things about it. So first off, when they started observing it, they noticed that its brightness varied a lot, which is strange. And as well as that, it didn't vary in a particularly regular fashion. Now, we have seen things like this before. We have seen objects that vary in brightness that are not stars. For example, there is a moon of Saturn that seems to have two faces where one face has a much higher albedo than the other. And so because of that, it seems to change in brightness. And so what they thought when they were looking over and doing models, they realized that what fit Oumuamua's brightness changing the best was the idea that it is actually a very strange shape, kind of like a cigar shape. So it's much longer than it is wide. I think it's maybe as much as 800 meters long, but maybe as small as a tenth, probably like a fifth uh, as wide, which is a very strange shape. And it was sort of tumbling through space. 
And so it was this tumbling motion, we think, that was leading to its changes in brightness. So basically when it was sort of edge on to us, it would look very dim, uh, but really it was just that we were looking at, I guess, a smaller cross section of uh, the object. While when it did maybe a strange tumble, when it changed orientation, then we would be able to see more of it. But from our point of view on Earth, that just translates to it appearing brighter. Uh, and so that's, we think, an explanation for why it seems to change brightnesses in such a strange way. I think that's a good point to raise because in general, if we're looking across it, we say, if we look at our building rubble, so all the leftover bits of our solar system. So if we're looking at the comets, if we're looking at the uh, asteroids, I mean, we affectionately refer to asteroids as space potatoes because that is what they look like. They do look like potatoes. They So they have that, that shape, but of course, bearing in mind that there is no set shape. And I think that's a key thing to raise is that, exactly. that we don't say that all asteroids are shaped like a potato because they're not all shaped like potatoes. So I think that's why when we're talking about the shape of a muamua, and I think I, and maybe I'm preempting something here, is that we haven't seen that shape before necessarily inside our solar system when we're looking at stuff. So I can understand that immediately that's very interesting because it's not yeah. something we've seen before. Well, that's exactly it. And it, it did spark uh, quite a lot of interesting theories course we think a long cigar shaped thing could that be an interstellar spaceship yeah valid assumption that, could be that's completely fair to start with but i think straight away uh, the fact that the the term that we use to describe its motion is tumbling as in it's not just rotating around one axis not just around two axes, it's in all three axes in this very strange, very, very strange motion. Ah, I see where you're heading. <laughs> That's not exactly, I mean, suppose I build myself a nice aerodynamic cigar-shaped ship. I'm not exactly then going to, well, do Tumble a tail. through space effectively. <laughs> yeah. Literally, it's like they're just tumbling, falling through space. So, um, yeah, that was quite interesting. They also did some, looked at it, uh, looked at the colour of it, so it looked quite red in visible light spectrum. Uh, but if you had a look in the infrared spectrum, it was actually quite a sort of neutral colour, so quite flat across all bands of infrared, which is interesting, and that does actually tell us something. That is actually very similar to some objects we have seen out in the Kuiper belt, out past the orbit of Neptune. Trans-Neptunium objects often have that kind of look. And so we think that it may have that look because it has spent some time, but not a whole lot of time in interstellar space. Oh, Basically, okay. thought that an object that is, you know, can be quite icy, if it spends a decent amount of time, but not like forever in interstellar space, cosmic rays, it will you know, burn off all of the ice on the outside and form this sort of carbon, like reddish layer over it. But it hasn't, it's not properly this really thick crust, it's it's still forming, it's still quite young in many ways. And so we think that, well, technically it could have spent billions of years going on its journey through interstellar space. We think that actually it's probably only spent a few million years, which is pretty exciting because that's pretty young. That's pretty young. I, I know for people listening to this, I think that's not quite old, but in, in astronomically speaking, that is very young. Exactly, exactly. But we still were not sure what it was made of or even really what it was because part of 
the problem with categorizing it is that it seemed to lack some of the key elements that we associate with specific objects. So comets, they have a coma, a tail that sprays behind them that is, well, it's the most iconic bit of a comet, I think. And this very much did not have it. However, it did have some comet-like characteristics. As it was being observed on its way out, they noticed that it deviated from its predicted trajectory very slightly, as if there was some sort of sudden acceleration. Now, this is actually very common with comets, because as comets pass by the sun, then they heat up. They've got a lot of gas and stuff trapped inside, and so little bits will come out of the surface, like degassing, it's called. And you can you actually have a look at it. We observed it with Comet 67P, the comet that ESA sent a satellite to. And the one that actually looks like a rubber duck. It does, does, yeah. Look up uh, Comet 67P, the rubber duck comet, as I am now dubbing it, and you can actually see some of this like outgassing as little jets come out, and that is enough to give it a little bit of a kick and change its acceleration. But that's normally accompanied by some sort of dust trail, and that wasn't visible. And so that did give some people who were like, oh, it could be aliens, some credence. They pointed some radio telescopes towards it in an effort to observe any radio signals. They did not observe a single radio signal. So there is no evidence that there is life there. And I think that is worth worth saying and worth emphasizing, I think, because, (laughs) you know, when we have discussions about where it could be from, how it could have formed, it is only natural. We don't want to be alone in the universe and we don't think we are, but the likelihood of it being an alien spaceship is so incredibly low. But earlier this year, there was an astronomy professor at Harvard who was saying that he was pretty sure that it was an alien ship. Now, there is a whole thing to be had about scientific ethics and things like that, because he published a book. He didn't publish peer-reviewed papers and stuff. He did publish some, but They were quite limited in their claims while in his book. He says that it was, or that at the very least, it is as likely to be an alien ship as it is anything else. And there was quite a lot of, I don't want to say like color blue, there was a bit of press that kicked up. Um, I saw quite a few articles um, online. My friend sent me some saying, what alien ship passed us by? What? And the problem is, is stuff like that sells, but I think it really is incredibly irresponsible. Like, yes, this man has done more for the astronomical community than I have and possibly ever will. But I don't think that makes him immune to criticism. And I think this was quite an irresponsible thing to do to suggest that it is as likely to be an alien ship as anything else. You know, I mean, Occam's razor, if if nothing else, what is the answer? Yeah, there is so much more that could explain it. And in fact, just this month, only a month or two after he published his book, some scientists from Arizona State University have come out with what looks like a pretty good explanation of what Oumuamua is that does not involve alien spaceships. So they went back and they had a look at it. And in the past, the idea that it was made of ice was quite shunned because of its brightness, its size, and the lack of outgassing that was visible as it left the solar system. But what they did is they went through and they tested different types of ices. So there's lots of different types of ice. There's water ices, carbon ice, carbon dioxide, all sorts of other things. So what they did is they simulated what this would look like for these different types of ice and simulated what you could see and tried to match it up with what 
we actually saw. And obviously if it's mostly water ice, you see more of a tail. But they actually discovered that if you put in it being made of nitrogen ice, you get something that almost exactly matches it. In fact, in terms of its albedo, that is how bright it is, they got a really good match and nitrogen ice is found in our solar system. Pluto has a lot of nitrogen ice yeah. and it's also really good because the New Horizons telescope went by and characterized it. They actually were able to use some of that data when they were doing this stuff here, which is really cool. So the thing with nitrogen ice is that it wouldn't necessarily produce the same coma that they were looking for. And so that could be an explanation as to why they didn't see it. Uh, as well as that, when they were looking at the calculations, they realized that actually this had already been through the ringer. You know, it's gone through the most intense bit where it's going to be blowing off most of its stuff. It's, it had been inside the orbit of Mercury. That's really uh, close to the sun. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So they're saying, well, honestly, by the time it gets there, how much of their gas and dust is there going to be left to be visible? Because you see, that's normally what we see with the dust trails is we don't see the gas of the outgassing, what we see are the dust trails. So the thought was, okay, we have an explanation that fits its albedo. We can say why we would see that sudden change in acceleration, but maybe no coma, maybe we just weren't looking for it necessarily in the right place. But another thing that was really, really interesting about their research was that they modeled it as being a very different shape in the past, not necessarily spherical, but more like a lumpy potato than the sort of cigar shape that it seems to be now. And they model it coming from a distant solar system. As it's getting closer to the sun, then it's going to have a lot of its outer stuff sort of stripped away. And they likened it uh, to a bar of soap. How if you have a bar of soap that's kind of a lumpy potato shape and you use it, it ends up with an annoying sliver that you can't do anything with. Yeah, and it, that's true. It's, yeah, that's exactly true. And they're saying, well, this is not <laughs> this is not just a soap thing. If you look at our models for something made of nitrogen ice and a bit of rock, as it comes by and as it has most of its materials stripped off it, then it will end up in this very strange shape. And they're saying that it has this really weird tumbling motion. It's sort of had this tumbling motion since it left its solar system. Because what they think might have happened is during a massive collision, uh, its host original planet may have crashed into something and a chunk came off and was just at the right angle to leave that solar system and come out to us, which is fascinating because we see this sort of thing happening in our solar system every day. We see collisions between trans-Neptunian objects, none quite this dramatic, but yeah. and a young solar system is a very terrifying place, quite frankly. And it is. I mean, it's a very violent place because there's just so many collisions happening. I mean, it's part of even understanding the formation of our solar system because that's the point is there was this period where it was just collisions everywhere, <laughs> you know, essentially, yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah, we're pretty sure that this is something that all solar systems go through. So this is, again, evidence that it, it fits in with our sort of understanding of lots of other things and fills in some gaps and maybe in our knowledge which is pretty exciting because now we know what to look for we can keep looking in fact the second interstellar object was discovered not long after uh, Oumuamua 
So we are going to be finding more and more of these interstellar objects, and they're not all going to be alien ships. And I'm going to have yeah. to guess and say that almost none of them will be. And while I certainly hope that one day we will be visited by a ship, uh, April 5th, 2063, anyone? <laughs> Star Trek First Contact Day. Yep, yeah. Um, you know, I I do think that that's going to happen sometime in the future, and it's it it wasn't Oumuamua because everything else, there's all this other evidence, all these other theories that fit so much better, that make so much more sense. Yeah. And also just thinking about if, if, first of all, two things. One, if I was in a tumbling alien spaceship, I'd be very worried. And two, if it was a spaceship and if I was captain of said spaceship, I don't think I would take my spaceship very close to a star. I don't know about you, Bryony, but I mean, in terms of piloting, I don't think that would necessarily be a good idea. No, perhaps. most definitely not, especially considering even in different different models, it still suggests that quite a lot of this uh, this stuff would have been blown off as it got close to the sun. Of course, we don't know exactly what it's made of. Unfortunately, we can't just go there and take a sample of it. That would be ideal. But it's already so far away that we can't see it with our telescopes, not Hubble, not anything. So we can't. If we were to try to send a space probe, we maybe could get a space probe out there, but it's not going to be able to actually do anything. And we are not even sure we'd be able to control it well enough for it to actually get to it in the first place. Yeah, that's true. The information we have about it now is all the information we are ever going to get on it. That's just the way that it is that's a valid point that you've raised is that we're limited to how much we can study objects and if it was as you say moving at such an incredible velocity the distance it would have already covered by now yeah and if it's very tiny you're not going to be able to get much information on it. you're not going to get any more information on it to be honest well that's that's pretty much it we have all the information we can we now just need to play with it and I think that it's it's really exciting that more research is still being done on it. I say more research is still being done on it. It was only three, four years ago. That's like a blink of an eye in terms of, I guess, astronomical objects, but even astronomical research. Like, yeah. this has not been a very slow process. This has been quite a fast one. And it does open the door to us studying more and looking for more things like this. And I, I definitely... I don't think it was aliens. <laughs> I guess is the upshot of that story is that Oumuamua was even more probably not aliens, like even more so not aliens. Well, that was a really good story, Bryony. And interesting, we've, even though yours is an interstellar traveler, you've spoken about it coming to our solar system. And my story this month is again about the solar system, which is my favorite place in the whole universe is people may have been able to tell by this point my story this month is specifically about a mystery that may have been solved briny and it's a mystery about our solar system specifically something called the zodiacal light now that's not necessarily two words that most people have heard put together but basically if you've ever find yourself out on a lovely clear dark sky and you're either looking at just after dusk or just before dawn and you've got no clouds up in the sky there's no moon up so it's the perfect observing conditions 
you might just be able to spot a faint triangular shaped column of light that seems to extend up from the horizon. And this light is called the zodiacal light. And it's actually sunlight that's being reflected towards the earth by a cloud of tiny dust particles that lie near the ecliptic of the solar system. So I should just point out that the ecliptic is that imaginary line across the sky that actually marks the annual path of the sun. Um, so it's effectively, it's just the projection of this orbit onto all this motion onto the celestial sphere. Now, those dust particles in that region orbit the sun in discrete bands. So there are actually kind of bands of these dust particles. But the problem is, is that they are scarce. And the scarcity of those dust particles actually makes them difficult to observe in space. Now, astronomers have always thought that the, those dust particles were brought into the inner solar system by asteroids and comets. And that seems like a very reasonable assumption to make because of the fact if we think here on the Earth, we, we spoke about actually about the fact that we've got the Lyrids meteor shower taking place in April. And meteor showers tend to be brought about because there are dust particles entering the Earth's atmosphere that have been brought here by comets and in some cases asteroids. Yeah, exactly. So that's been the working assumption for years is that that's where the dust particles have come from. However, a group of scientists that are working on data obtained from the Juno spacecraft, and Juno is in orbit around Jupiter, this group of scientists think they may have found the culprit responsible for this cosmic littering. Oh, wow. I mean, that is now I really like the name Juno for, for Jupiter. The mission that goes around Jupiter because uh, in Roman mythology Juno is Jupiter's wife so she's going to keep an eye on him. Yeah. Uh, Juno is not just keeping an eye on him it seems, keeping an eye on other cosmic litterers. Yes and so you might be thinking at this point well if it's Juno then the cosmic culprit for littering must be Jupiter. Surely. But it's not. It's <gasps> not Jupiter at all Bryony. Not it us is, is it? Well, I mean, no, we've been littering space with all sorts of other <laughs> junk. Um, let's not talk about that. That'll be a subject for another day and could easily fill in out just how much junk's in orbit around the Earth. Uh, but interestingly, they now think that the dust particles may come from Mars. Mars? Okay, so now I think you might be wondering, but hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah. Juno is a Jupiter. Yeah, there so, is a whole asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. Yeah, so so how on earth do we have data from Juno that suggests Mars is responsible? And that's a very valid question to raise. So the answer is that the data that has been used to solve this mystery was actually obtained when Juno was on its way to Jupiter. I see. Ah, so all of a sudden it becomes yeah. revealed. So the question is, okay, how, how did this all come about? Well, if you look at Juno, Juno is kitted out with a whole suite of scientific instrumentation because it's jam-packed with all sorts of instruments to help it study Jupiter. And if anyone's interested, you can actually go and have a look at the Juno uh, official mission website, and it'll show you a breakdown of just all the instruments that are packed into this little spacecraft. Now, one of the instruments on board Juno is a magnetometer. And that's effectively an instrument that can measure and create maps of magnetic fields. And one of Juno's mission purposes is to map the magnetic field of Jupiter. 
I mean, that's now, useful because we, well, we think that Jupiter's magnetic field causes some very interesting reactions on its moon. So that's certainly interesting. Yeah. So it's important to understand the magnetic field of Jupiter. It's, it'll, it'll help to transform our understanding of what's really happening inside the planet as well, because that's a whole area of mystery too. So the work that Juno is doing is very important. Now, the thing about these observations is that when Juno is doing it, it needs to make sure that when they're putting these maps together, these maps of the magnetic field, that they're aligning things properly because obviously the way Juno works is it's going to be taking sort of snapshot measurements and people have to build this up to reconstruct this three-dimensional shape. So the way it works is that associated with this instrument are actually four navigational cameras. And what they do is they snap photos of the sky every quarter of a second. So they're really quick exposures. And this helps to determine Juno's orientation in space, which again is very important if you're going to start to, to put these images together. And the way it does it, it's really clever. It does, it figures out where it is in space by recognizing star patterns and comparing what's seen in those images with catalogs of known celestial objects. So you can imagine when Juno's, with it being now out of Jupiter, it looks at the stars and it, it'll figure out where it's pointing and everything. But when Juno was on its way to Jupiter, what the scientists thought about was, well, why not take images along the way as well, partly for navigational purposes, but also you never know what you might come across. And one of the ideas was that maybe on this journey out to Jupiter, they might pass an asteroid we didn't know about as an example. So what they did was the scientists actually programmed the camera on Juno. So they, they programmed the computer and all these cameras to report things that it identified in multiple consecutive images, but that were not identifiable from those preloaded catalogs. So basically what you want to do is if you spot something in an image, you don't want to go, oh, I don't know what that is, because it could be, for example, a cosmic ray impact, which causes, uh, you know, bright flashes on your CCDs and that. Yeah. So what you do is if you've taken consecutive images of that field, you look to see if that what you saw in the first one appears in consecutive images. Yeah. So basically, when they programmed this, the scientists were thought, OK, while it's on its way to, to Jupiter, we're probably not going to expect the camera to send us many alerts. It's, you know, it's not going to send us anything. What they did not expect to happen was for the camera to return thousands of images of unidentifiable objects. And I mean, when, I got that in my email inbox, I'd be like, oh my goodness, I messed up the code. I messed yeah, up. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because... <laughs> You'd be a bit concerned if this camera is reporting all this. And when they opened up the images, they had a look at them and they could actually see streaks that were appearing and then disappearing. So these streaks would appear across a couple of frames and then disappear. Now, when you see something like this, uh, you have to run through a list of things it might be and what it might not be. And as you touched on, did we make a mistake in the coding? But the fact that it was doing its job. It was realizing that there was something appearing in these frames. Then you have to think about potential problems with the spacecraft itself. Now, one of the things that they thought might be happening and one that was a huge concern to them 
was that Juno was actually leaking fuel. And that's what they were seeing in these images. They were seeing this fuel, obviously reflecting sunlight, just streaming past the spacecraft. Actually nightmare. That that would be your absolute nightmare. You've got a brand new spacecraft on its way. It needs this fuel and its fuel's just leaking out into space. Okay, so what they had to do was to figure out what this was, they took the images and they actually used them to calculate the apparent size of these objects that they were seeing, as well as the velocity of these objects. Now they can do that with clever maths. You can do that. You can figure out apparent sizes. You can figure out velocities. And it turned out that the streaks they were seeing were coming from the spacecraft. Okay. So that's bad. That's bad. It's definitely coming from the spacecraft. The good news is it wasn't fuel, but it was actually pieces of the spacecraft itself. I mean, I think that's worse. So, okay, so let me maybe put your mind at ease. They were sub-millimeter pieces. Mm. Maybe you're not quite at ease yet. So, oh, I'm so, not. <laughs> so now what's going on? You've actually seen bits of spacecraft coming off and being imaged by this camera. And then they started to do a little bit of math, like what could break off sub-millimeter pieces of the spacecraft? And so what they did was is they had a look at where this was happening because it was sending out all these images and then there would be a pause and then there would be another series of images and then there would be a pause. And when they kind of looked at where the spacecraft was in the solar system when it happened, they then realized that dust grains were smashing into the solar panels on Juno at about 10,000 miles per hour, which for those of us who work in kilometers per hour, about 16,000 kilometers per hour. And these dust grains were actually chipping pieces off of the panels. Okay, now just in case at this point, you're really worried because solar panels, very important on a solar powered spacecraft. Um, other way though, aren't they? So they, they, they were the other way around. So it was all right. So you were absolutely fine. Um, all of the precious solar cells were actually protected against impact by the support structure on those solar panels. So that's what was taking the brunt of the, uh, the impact. Phew. So everyone's happy. So it means the solar panels themselves, which were vital, were not harmed. So what the scientists could really cleverly do now is they could use the information from these impacts and they compiled a map or a distribution of where the dust was along Juno's path. Oh, that's clever. So you could, you could create a dust distribution map based on where the impacts occurred. And obviously the, uh, you can get an idea of the density as well due to the number of impacts that you were getting. Now, something to bear in mind is that Juno's path, it didn't go straight from the Earth to Jupiter. All right. So no. what it did was it, it had a path that involved a maneuver inside the asteroid belt, which brought Juno back to the Earth so they could get a gravity assist, which then um, sent the spacecraft out to Jupiter. So by looking at the flight path and looking at the positions along this flight path where the spacecraft received impacts, they determined the distribution of these dust particles in space. And this is the first time that scientists have been able to actually do this because as I mentioned, they're quite scarce and you can't study these dust particles all that well. well you can't see them with your telescopes. You need to yeah. 
have something interact with it. And you're not going to be like, mm, hey, NASA, do you mind if I like borrow a space probe and fire it at things? They'd be like, no. Yeah, yeah that's, I mean, no, that's not how things work. So just in case anyone was planning on emailing NASA and asking them, they're going to say no. That's going to yeah. be a no for that. But when they look at this dust distribution, they realize that it's sort of, if you look at this cloud of dust, one edge of the cloud of dust begins near the earth. Okay. Um, and the other edge of the cloud uh, in, so if you've got one edge starting here at the earth, the other edge is at around two astronomical units. Now an astronomical unit is the average distance between the earth and the sun, which is about 150 million kilometers. Now Mars lies at one and a half astronomical units. Okay, so this dust cloud ends at two astronomical units. Now, at that point, at that exact point at two astronomical units, basically what happens is Jupiter's gravity acts as a barrier. And so those dust particles can't actually cross um, further than that. So they kind of, that's a wall they hit effectively because gra Jupiter's gravity is like, nope. Yeah. I'm going to throw in a Gandalf re reference here. You shall not pass. So I had to. Sorry. Reference earlier today. Now we're going with a with a Lord of the Rings one. Wow. I mean, if we had any quote unquote cool listeners left, they've uh, they've gone. They've officially gone. Uh, well, continuing with the perhaps one listener we have left at this point. So, if you look at those dust particles that are in this cloud, and they are all in orbit around the sun. Okay, so they they are moving. They're in motion. So what the scientists then did, as you do, is you create a computer model. So what they wanted to do is they figured, okay, if we've got this dust cloud, then the dust cloud must reflect light because that's what dust does. It reflects light. And so they, what they wanted to do is they wanted to figure out, well, what would that light look like? So they took a computer model. And they had to plug all sorts of things in. So what they did was they were able to, they had a rough idea for the orbital characteristics of the dust cloud. So they were kind of playing around with a couple of parameters. They also had to take into account the fact that you've got gravitational interaction with Jupiter. So that's going to influence the, the, the dust particles as well. So they were playing around in this world, and that's effectively what you do when you're modeling something. You play around with the parameters, and you see what the outputs are, and you and you see how these things affect that output. Well, a little harken back to my story. I mean, that's exactly what they did. They had that's exactly what they did. Yeah, you have to play around with a couple of parameters. And well, here's the kicker, Bryony. If you use the orbital elements of Mars mm -hmm. as the orbital characteristics of the dust cloud i.e. if you're saying the dust cloud has the exact same orbit as Mars. So this means you're looking at the orbital eccentricity, so the, the shape of the orbit. And if you include the precise tilt of Mars's orbit around the sun, because oh. each planet is you know, teeny, teeny, slightly inclined, their program accurately predicted the variations that are seen in the zodiacal light near the ecliptic. Wow, that is fast. That is amazing. Like that is just such a amazing twist, to be honest, and use of this data. Because you know you're talking about this mission moving through space, these dust clouds, but it really is a testament to whoever went. Hang on a second. Can we use this to explain something else? Oh, I love, I love it when science and scientists do that. When you know 
the way uh, so many people who do science, the way their brains work, I love it so much because, yeah. you know, so so often, you know, if you're talking to people who don't work in science, you say something and you're like, oh, it's like this. And they look at you like you've just grown a third ear. And you're like, no, no, it, it connects, it connects. And, you know, this is something that I really love about, about science is that, you know, we are always looking for connections between exactly. You know, and our brains are always looking for connections. Yeah. And it's just their insight into taking something that maybe somebody would have said, oh, it's okay, we just passed through a dust cloud. But the fact that you've, you've had this really interesting story develop that they could take dust impacts on a spacecraft and solve the problem, well, appear to solve the problem of the zodiacal light. It's, it's brilliant. So we now know that Mars or potentially the moons of Mars must somehow be the source of this dust or were the source of this dust. But the question is, how did the dust get out there? And more importantly, how has it escaped the gravity of the red planet? Because it's, if you think about it, the dust is spread out pretty broadly as well. So there's this question now about how this dust has moved about. But yeah, if it's coming from Mars, if it's coming from the moons, how? Where is it coming from? Now, one idea which has been suggested, but I think it's going to require a lot of work, is the suggestion that maybe the global dust storms on Mars might be responsible. But then that means the dust is escaping the Martian atmosphere and the gravity of Mars. So uh, I don't know. That sounds pretty unlikely from the admittedly little I know about it, but not that much. But I mean, having said that, though, they do believe that that is a mechanism for escape of water. Yeah. So are the two perhaps somehow linked up? I mean, I think this is going to open up a a, a really interesting uh, area of research now. Well, there has been some stuff that came out at the beginning beginning of last year, late last year. Um, I think actually I spoke, it was late last year. You spoke about it, yeah. Yeah, um, about how they think actually these dust storms may have driven um, the escape of water. However, part of that was the dust resettling (laughs) and the water escaping. Um, But I mean, you know, that doesn't mean that in the past it wasn't different. Yeah. Uh, So there we go. A a potential mystery that appears to have been solved. And I I would not be surprised now if this might encourage some kind of further study. Uh, But just as an added bonus, actually, the study of these dust impacts on Juno will help engineers to design spacecraft materials that will better withstand these impacts. And again, another added bonus is that now that they have an idea of how the dust is distributed in the in this in the solar system region, it will help guide flight plans for future spacecraft in order to avoid these regions where the dust concentration is at its highest. Because the last thing you want to do is send a very important and expensive spacecraft through a region when you're traveling at thousands of kilometers per hour and these dust impacts are going to impact it and people just to maybe reiterate as a final point in the story is that when you think of dust particles you might think they can't make much of an impact but trust me a tiny dust particle thousands of kilometers per hour and an impact it can make damage and if you want to see just how much damage can be made there is an image on the internet that shows one of the space shuttle windows that was replaced because of a, a meter impact. So it was a very, very small uh, piece of dust and it 
put quite a chunky hole in the space shuttle window. So if you've never seen that, do have a quick Google after you've listened to our podcast to completion and you'll understand why you want to protect your spacecraft because yeah, can I you mean, imagine the damage a bigger piece of space dust might do? Yeah. I mean, all I'm thinking of is if you've, I suppose if our listeners are in the UK, they may not have as much. I have never seen an unsealed road here that wasn't just mud. But, you know, particularly in Australia, drive on an unsealed road that's incredibly dusty and rocky. Yeah. And even even just dusty and a little bit rocky when you're traveling, even when you're traveling super fast by car standards, even then that will do significant damage to your car. Yeah. And so I cannot imagine even much smaller dust grains, but it's vastly higher uh, velocities. So lesson learned just bear in mind if you are planning on building your uh, Oumuamua shaped spaceship one day uh, make sure to protect it against dust impacts so look at that briny ice I somehow seemingly wove our two stories in there to end today's podcast seamless mix I didn't even notice how perfect it was until you said it it was just wow like smoothest transition ever but as you say, with that, we will finish the podcast. Oh, I mean, I think we've had a good one this month. You know, two mysteries potentially solved. Um, yeah. Opening up the doorway for more mysteries to come. And also we can conclude from both of them, it's not aliens. Yeah, it's not aliens. <laughs> as much as Patricia and I, look, anyone who knows Patricia and I will know that we desperately wish it could be aliens. <laughs> But it's not aliens. It's not aliens. Yeah. And also, I mean, people might have burning questions about some of these things and do have a look at all of our wonderful resources that we have available online. We've got our brand new YouTube channel where we answer some really interesting questions. So please do have a look at that. You'll find our animated videos, our observatory online videos, and also interviews now with our astronomers. And uh, Briny, I know you were interviewed and your interview is up there. So if people want to start to put a face to a voice, you can do that now. You'll be able to... Uh, uh, sort of hear about Bryony and her journey into astronomy so please do have a listen to that and we are also active on social media on our Twitter account at ROG Astronomers so please do follow us if you haven't already done it and we'll, there you'll be kept up to date with all the breaking news in astronomy and space exploration and of course, if you do have any questions for us, if there's any story that you'd like to learn a bit more about, then why not tweet us at ROG Astronomers and we'd be happy to put a story together about whatever topic you'd like us to talk about. But with that, we have to unfortunately bring our cosmic diary to an end. Yes, unfortunately, that's it for this month. But if you're interested in what we have said, as Patricia said, check us out on all the social medias, but also on our website with the fabulous Night Sky Highlights blog. Until next month, uh, stay safe and clear skies. Mm-hmm.